This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number 79, with guest Tara Moore. All links and resources you hear in this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash 79. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host. The girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. I hope you are doing so awesome today. I just want to say a quick thank you for showing up and listening to my podcast. I appreciate it from the absolute bottom of my heart. I just love that I get to spend this time with you. So today's podcast episode, I'm going to tell you about Tara Moore in just a second here, but I wanted to make sure that I mentioned I have something amazing and free coming up. So starting on January 11th, I am hosting my third wildly popular the Kick-Ass Courage Project's seven-day challenge. It's been a while since I, I haven't done it since June of this year, 2015. So if you haven't done one with me, and even if you have, y'all, I switched it up a little bit. Days three and four are different than they were before. I noticed that the days three and four were kind of tricky for people. So I'm like, all right, you know what? I need to go in and change it. I need to listen to the people and make it a little bit easier for you guys. And so I did that. So it is a little bit different from the last two times I've done it, but extremely impactful. This seven-day challenge, what I hear the most from the women that sign up for it and take it is, I can't believe I'm not the only one. That is the thing I hear over and over again because so many of us live our lives and we feel like we're the only one that struggles this way. So what the heck is the seven-day challenge about? No, it is not like the burpees challenge or you know, anything like that. This is a little bit of a deep dive, y'all. Like this kind of throws you in the deep end and I'm there with you teaching you how to swim here. We're talking all about your inner critic, your negative self-talk, that feeling of not enough, beating yourself up, always feeling like you're falling short. If you can relate to any of those, get your asses over to yourkickasslife.com forward slash the number seven. It's a seven-day challenge, yourkickasslife.com forward slash seven-day challenge, all one word there. There's a link to it in the show notes in case you missed it, and I am excited to do it again. This always rallies up a ton of women. I remember the first time I ran it. Well, it's been a total of, it's been over, it's almost 3,500 women have gone through it and it's incredible and I love doing it. It, um, it's emotionally exhausting for me. Like I won't lie. (laughs) That's why I only do it a couple times a year. Um, because it just, it just brings out so much love and emotion and compassion and learning and wisdom and shifting and it, It's just one of those things that um, I absolutely adore all of you, and I just love bringing you all on this journey. I'm at a bit of a loss for words. It's one of those things that I just, um, I can't explain it. You need to just experience it. Yourkickasslife.com forward slash seven day challenge. It's totally free. You get worksheets every day, emails every day. You don't have to show up live to any calls or anything. Uh, It's all at your own pace, but we do seven days in a row. So go on over there to check it out. And let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. 
As always, very excited. Tara Moore is an expert on women's leadership and well-being. She helps women play bigger in sharing their voices and bringing forward their ideas in work and in life. Tara is the creator of the Playing Big Leadership Program for Women, which now has more than 1,000 graduates from around the world. Her book, Playing Big, Find Your Voice, Your Mission, Your Message, named a best book of 2014 by Apple's iBooks, shares her pioneering model from the acclaimed leadership program for making the journey from playing small, being held back by fear and self-doubt, to playing big, taking bold action to pursue what you see as your callings. A Coaches Training Institute certified coach with an MBA from Stanford University and an undergraduate degree in English literature from Yale, Tara takes a unique approach that blends inner work and practical skills training. Her work has been featured on national media from the New York Times to the Today Show to Harvard Business Review and has captivated women from all walks of life, including Maria Shriver, Jillian Michaels, and Elizabeth Gilbert. So without further ado, here is Tara. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another edition of the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. As always, I'm very excited to be here on episode 79 with Tara Moore. Tara, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm delighted. I am... it feels like 150 years ago, but I interviewed you in 2012. <laughs> I remember. I remember that well. Which, in the life coach industry, kind of is uh, with how quickly things change. Does feel like 150 years ago, but since then, you have come out with the book "Playing Big," and we're very excited because the paperback version has has come out. So, yes. congratulations! New, new into the world. Yeah, like a rebirth. <laughs> it is. It's another round of bringing it into the world, which is really cool. Awesome. And so that's really where I want to start because I was digging into it and I love that your very first chapter in Playing Big is on the inner critic, which is a topic that we talk a lot about here over yes. your kick-ass life. And I'm so glad, you know, that more and more it's coming out into the open in personal development. And I, I love in the book that you have like a table where, because we all love, you know, to see figures and tables and stuff. But yes. I love that you map out what is inner critic thinking and what is realistic thinking. So can you give us like a couple of examples of that? Absolutely. And I'll first say I put that in the book and I started to include it in my work because I found everywhere I went, when I talk to women about the inner critic, and especially in environments where uh, people were doing a lot of critical thinking in their job, like corporate life, academia, uh, people who had had a lot of education prior to what they were doing now, people were always asking me, yeah, but how do you know if you're just being realistic or what if the situation is really dire? Mm -hmm. What Facts. if you really aren't ready for that? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah. And I definitely, you know, I never want to be that everything is rainbows, mm -hmm. butterflies, life coach. I do not want to be that. Um, and of course I really value critical thinking and realistic thinking. So I, I wanted to tease that apart more as I was seeing it uh, come up for people. And the, so some of the guidelines, some of the clues um, one, your inner critic is never going to talk about a situation in a nuanced way. It's the inner critic isn't really able to see the gray, mm -hmm. whereas true realistic thinking is able to see the complexity, will not see things in black and white terms, but will see some of the middle ground that's probably there and some of the gray. Um, another one is that the inner critic 
usually speaks in very kind of declarative ways in our minds. You are going to mess this up. You aren't ready for that. You know you've never been a good negotiator. Realistic thinking, true realistic thinking, tends to be very curious and ask a lot of open-ended questions. So it would be able to assess in a more realistic way, like, huh, I'm not feeling like I'm ready for this. I wonder if I am. How can I find that out? So it would Im- immediately moves into seeking solutions, trying to gave it, gather data, which your inner critic will never do. Um, and then lastly, you can also tell them apart a little bit by tone. The inner critic will tend to not all the time, because sometimes our inner critics can be very, very sneaky, but often our inner critics will speak in a fairly anxious, chattery, yes. fast, broken record kind of tone. And true realistic thinking it is calmer, more grounded, more uh, emotionally neutral. Absolutely. I a thousand percent agree with everything you said. And I often, because I often get that question of, okay, since my intuition, you know, my inner wisdom is also an inner voice. How do I decipher between the two? Especially because these women have been listening to their inner critic for decades and have, my people tend to have a really hard time slowing down and listening to that voice of inner wisdom. So it can be tricky, but I I love how you kind of spell it out. And, um, and it really is just, uh, yes, I I find that the inner critic sometimes is like panicked, like, oh my God. Yeah, because and certainly in, in the playing big model, we look at the inner critic as an expression of our safety instinct. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, there's always for any time that you think you're hearing your inner critic, you can always ask yourself, like, what would my safety instinct be worried about in this situation? Right. And a lot of times then you can, I, like, to give an example um, for me, when the book was coming out last fall. Um, about a month before it was going to be out, I received an email from my editor um, at Penguin at my publisher, and the email was like one or two lines long, and it said, great news, we've piqued the interest of the op-ed editors of the New York Times. They'd like you to write an essay about based on Chapter 6 um, for consideration for the Sunday op-ed page. So I saw that email, and my first thought was... Oh no. Oh no. Now I'm going to have to waste all this time trying to write an essay because I can't tell my publisher I'm not even going to try. I'm so busy with the book launch and I'm going to have to spend all this time writing an essay that obviously is not never going to be published because people who write for the New York Times sound like grown-ups when they write. Mm-hmm. And Tara, you know you've never sounded like a grown-up when you write. Um, totally hearing, totally hearing my inner critic and, um, and heard that voice for about five days before the first time I had the thought, you know, that might be my inner critic now. Um, and when I asked myself like, well, Hmm, you know, what would my safety instinct be concerned about? Cause I honestly couldn't see it in the moment. I was like, that's not my inner critic. That's true. Like mm-hmm. this is true. And I was <laughs> They're like, very well, convincing, aren't they? Yeah. So convincing. <laughs> Then I was like, is there anything my safety instinct might be worried about here? And then it was like, oh, you know, of course. Like, this is kind of like our emotional safety instinct. This is kind of like a worst nightmare moment for that part. Mm -hmm. That's like, we're going to write our opinion 
on an opinion page of a well-known paper, like one thing we know absolutely for sure is that a whole lot of people aren't going to like it. They're going to tell you about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's even if it gets published. A safety instinct also doesn't like that we're going to send in this essay when a possibility is that they write back and say, nice try, sweetie. Like, mm-hmm. that was a really mm-hmm. cute, cute effort you we'll made pass. there to, to be a real serious person. Um, so, yeah. So, there, it's usually all about fear with the inner critic, but it's hard to see. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I love that you pointed to something really important, too, and that is the whole aspect of, of being – curious and taking the time because like a lot of times we hear like oh fuck that bitch fear and like let's you know just tell her to shut up and I'm like hold on sister like this is still a part of you and I it's like this biological thing that we have and it like you said it's a matter of safety a matter of emotional safety and you are absolutely like you have permission to be a little bit afraid that people are going to totally disagree with your opinion in the New York Times like (laughs) That would be a little bit painful. You know, we're all human at the end of the day. But I think, like, what's important is where are you letting it stop you? Where are you letting it make decisions that don't serve you? Exactly. Exactly. And I believe we should really be responding to the scared part of ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, pretty much like we would respond to a child who is feeling freaked out about some sort of change. Like, we wouldn't yell. We wouldn't swear at them. We wouldn't try and beat them Mm -hmm. up. No. We would, like, respond with empathy and kindness, but we also wouldn't let that child's fear run the show. Like we wouldn't, you know, um, we wouldn't not cross the street to get to where we're going because that child was feeling nervous for a second. We would talk to them about it. We would help sure, make sure it happened safely. Um, but we wouldn't let them direct the show. Absolutely. So yeah. Yeah. I call that, I use the metaphor of like driving the bus and so many mm-hmm. of us just like let our inner critic drive the bus and then we're kind of like in the back seat, like timidly raising our hand, like, well, I would like to turn left. Inner critic's like, nope, not going to happen. Yeah. So it's up to us to get into the front seat. And yeah, no, I, I love that. I love that chapter. So on your website, you actually have what you call the 10 rules for brilliant women. And yeah. the first one is make a pact. Can you explain what this means and why it's so incredibly important? Mm. Well, I love that you're asking about that because um, I don't get to talk a lot about that now. I wrote I wrote the ten rules in 2010, and they really went quite viral. And um, and they're still I love having them. They're sort of a great entry point for people on my website. But thank you for asking about them because I, I often don't get to speak about that for depth now. Yeah. So you know. Make a pact is rule number one. And the idea there, it's, of course, about making a pact with yourself. And I'll just share from my own story here because that was really the genesis of that rule for me. Um, When I was – before I switched onto this career path, I was in a different career. I worked in the philanthropic world. So I was working for a large foundation helping to give away money. Um, I felt pretty good about the work I was doing. I liked my colleagues. I liked my paycheck. I liked my office. Like I was not, um, and I think I I share that because I think it's important. A lot of us want to make major change in our lives, not because the status quo is horrible, but because it's not living up to what we would hope. Um, we would feel in terms of the vibrancy and, and meaning and, I used this 
Mary Oliver's phrase is really coming up for me here. I used my one precious life well, Mm -hmm. right? And so that I knew I was copping out at that level. And that started to get clearer and clearer and started to be more painful to me that I, you know, it's like, where did the tar go that grew up loving theater, loving being on stage, loving being on camera, loving dance, loving writing, wanting to do something creative, wanting to do something entrepreneurial, like where did she go and why did she get so buried? And I remember very clearly, um, one of the first things I did in that exploration process was I, I hired a coach and um, I hired, I didn't know anything about the life coaching industry. Really. I knew a little, and I kind of in a random way hired this coach. I literally could not understand anything that he said because he had such a heavy accent. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and How many sessions did it take you before you said anything? <laughs> no, but I loved this coaching because despite not being able to understand anything he said, Truly, like the warmth and love for this buried self that this man had for me, I could feel completely. Mm -hmm. And he could just sort of, I could vaguely be like, okay, that was a question about, you know, something about what do, what do I love maybe? And then I would talk and then he would ask my question. And, um, and really because of the level of love that was in his voice, um, for that buried self. I started to open up a little more to that buried self and what was there. And um, at that time, I had no idea how I could get to what I wanted. And it didn't seem very attainable. It was like, I have a business, I have an MBA, I'm in the social sector, I have like a social sector resume, I haven't written creatively in years. Um, I wear a bunch of tweed business suits, you know, <laughs> meetings with other foundations, but I'm like seeing this like, you know, goddessy looking woman who's like over here wearing tunics with long hair and like, how the how am I going to get there kind of thing. And, um, and the first thing that was such a transformational shift for me was that feeling of I'm getting back on my own side. And I could, it almost felt like a physical shift to me of, I have no idea how this is not about knowing the plan, but I am switching my loyalty back to that self that wants to come out and making a pact to say to her, I don't know how we're going to get there, but I want you to know now I'm going to start trying and I'm not going to abandon you again. So that's the pact. Wow. That's powerful. I've never heard it explained that way. And it's just, it's so simple yet so profound. The whole concept of really just committing to yourself. And I think that that happens for many people. And it it actually happened for me too. I had a different circumstance. I completely fell on my face and and picked myself up and was like, I'm done with really bad relationships, etc. But I had the same experience where I didn't know what it was going to look like. And trust me when I tell you like, I wanted, <laughs> I like to control things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many of us do. Right, right. But I, there's so much power in that. And, um, you know, for anyone listening, I think that we we make up that there's power in knowing what the path is going to look like. There's power in the itinerary, in the syllabus, you know, <laughs> but that's not what making a pact really is, it sounds like. Yeah, for me, that wasn't the foundation of it. And, and one of the things that... Um, I later wrote about 
that, that kind of came out of that experience um, is that for me, I know the, you know, I thought that then it meant, you know, okay, well, if I got to be writing again, and if I got to have that entrepreneurial career, and you know, if those things came into being, then I would start to feel that vibrancy and sense of aliveness and joy that I was looking for. But what I didn't expect was that a lot of that joy and vibrancy came back right after I got back on my own side. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of like after you made the decision even? Yeah, it was mm-hmm. like, and I, I think we've, and I see this a lot with women that, especially around our callings, like I, I want to pursue this art form or I want to start this organization in my community or I have this like vision for a really cool project or I just want to do something in this direction. Um, we don't realize how much will change when we just give ourselves full permission to want what we want. Like mm-hmm. so much of the suffering is coming from not fully allowing, just allowing the desire. And when we finally speak the desire, welcome it, um, say, I have no idea how that, how we're going to get there, but I am totally okay with the, the truth that this is what I want. That changes our mood and state of being immediately. So it's really cool because it's kind of like you actually get the payoff before you even have to do much outer I work. absolutely agree. And it's interesting. I've had private clients who have signed on to work with me before and we haven't even gotten on the phone yet. And they're emailing me like saying like these awesome things are happening. And mm. and it's just about them like making that commitment to themselves before they've even started to do the work yet. Yes. And it, it really is such a mind shift when you are – and I think too you have to be ready. And I think any of you listening – and I'm not saying this like as an out – but if you're not ready, just you know, ask the universe to get you there and put you on the path to get there because it's coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's coming. Mm-hmm. For sure. And if, and if anyone wants to read the rest of those, um, the 10 rules, if you go, all the links and resources are at yourkickasslife.com forward slash seven nine, everything that we're talking about here today. And one of my favorite blog posts that you wrote is from like, back in 2013 and uh, to remind you what it was about, but you called it a helpful little question. And you talk about asking yourself this one particular question when something happens in our life that shakes us up a little bit. And you use the following examples, like he hasn't called back, she snapped at me, they gave the job to someone else. And the question that you state is, what am I making this mean? So can you explain to the listeners how to use this? Yeah. That, you know, with all the really difficult but also good things um, that happen in our lives, there's the fact of what happened. And then there's the thing that kicks in, which is our our brain's immediate desire to interpret it and make sense of it and give a reason for it. And this is where we can get really, really misled because we've all got our particular lens, our way of seeing the world, of seeing human beings, our relationship patterns, our wounds, and that will determine the story we tell about how to interpret facts. Um, I'll give an example from my life from this week. Um, So this just happened two days ago where... um, something unexpected happened in my husband's work day and he got a really cool opportunity to meet someone 
that he thinks is cool, but someone that is like really important in my constellation of people I admire that I have never met. And I was pissed. (laughs) (laughs) I was like happy for him on the mental level and everything below my neck, (laughs) you know, like everything in that chest part area was like, Oh, this is a toughie. And, um, and, and, and then that, you know, he got hung up late at the thing he was doing and I was home in the afternoon and I was, you know, with, um, doing stuff around the house and like with our wonderful child. And I have a story that, you know, is informed by the way that I grew grew up. Um, and that's informed by so many images in our culture, which says like somehow along the way, um, you know, my career is going to fall behind and, um, somehow his is going to get to become more important. Cause I feel like I've watched that happen to so many couples, even when they mm-hmm. had the best of intentions otherwise. And so I started to make this incident mean that that was happening. It's like he got to do this cool thing and I'm at home and I knew I was layering a story on it to it. And I knew my work was going to be to be like, Nope, actually what happened is like he had this weird serendipity where he got to meet this person that does not mean it doesn't mean you're getting divorced. Doesn't know. And I wasn't worried about getting here. I was more worried about like it doesn't mean I'm gonna end up at home washing the dishes for the rest of my life where <laughs> opportunities. That's what I was worried about. So that's my story. And um that's what I made it mean. And it doesn't mean that. And so, you know, always looking at what what is the neutral fact of what happened and then really untangling that from the interpretation and being very skeptical about your interpretation. And sometimes we have to do a lot of processing, you know, around writing our interpretation, saying it to a listener who can help us sort through it um, in order to, you know, see that it's not the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I call that catastrophizing. And I think so many of us are just like the mayors of that town. Yes, and for sure. Yeah, I mean, my gosh, I've like planned my own funerals before, like within like 30 seconds in my mind based on like one <laughs> seemingly not related event. <laughs> one twinge in your elbow. Right, like, it right, could I be know. something very serious. Like, who would show up? Like what music would they play? <laughs> right. But, but yeah, I, I totally get that. And and sometimes I, for me, it's just a matter of getting really curious and asking myself, what if it didn't mean anything? Like, or what if it just wasn't a big deal? That was like one of my favorite questions that one of my favorite private coaches asked me because why would I would be really dramatic about it? And like you said, like making up that I was just going to be washing dishes 24 seven. <laughs> and like, what if it wasn't that big of a deal? What if he just was going to go meet this really cool person? Right. That's it. I mean, the reason that, and sometimes with the speed that life moves that it's, we want to just like realize, okay, I'm making up a story. It doesn't mean that move on. But the opportunity I think is there to look at the story. Cause if a specific incident brings it up, it's probably a lens you're wearing that you're seeing a lot of your life through. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a great opportunity for growth to bring up like, what is the interpretation? Hmm. Why is that my default interpretation of things? Where did that come from? And do I want to let that go? Not just for this incident, but more broadly. Right. Absolutely. For sure. So, um, what surprises you about the work you do with women? Hmm. Um, how, how similar everyone's challenges are across age, you know, that, that I see 
senior, you know, people are always like, often when I go into a corporate environment or an organization to speak, they're like, well, this is, you know, the age cohort of the women. Like, so can you gear your remarks towards mid managers or executives or women starting out? And I am pretty surprised that, you know, as I've taught the playing big course over the years and been sharing this work, um, people are grappling with the same issues yes, they are. Uh, <laughs> at, at every stage um, in every part of the world, you know, of course there's diversity based on what's happening in our country, but there's a huge commonality. Um, so that, that has been a big surprise. And then also I especially recently have been really surprised by the shift in the corporate world towards a lot more openness, um, around doing inner work and even, framing things in a sort of secular in a in a kind of spiritual universal but spiritual way mm-hmm. um you know a big part of my work is around the inner mentor and helping women access what i call the inner mentor which is a, a vision of an older wiser version of themselves and we access that through a guided visualization and meditation and people are often very moved by what they see and it, it, it has a really spiritual quality to it um, because it's, it's really not about accessing your, you know, your fantasy of ho- who you hope you'll be in 20 years, but really like your kind of inner wise woman and your essential self and the appetite that, you know, I'm hearing for people who want to bring that into corporate workshops and the embrace of it when we do, it's just been really surprising. So I think, um, you know, I know a lot of um, entrepreneurs and coaches that are probably listening from your community. We have our stereotypes about, you know, what what it would look like to do work in a corporate arena. And I think those are really worth examining. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. Like that, may, and, and I'm well aware of that too. And that makes me so damn excited. Yeah, it's really <laughs> exciting. We are, we are experiencing a cultural awakening and like, I, it makes me like giddy. Like, mm. <laughs> I mean, even five years ago, I mean, I, I launched my official business in 2010 and back then people didn't know, like most people didn't know what a life coach was. And now in 2015, they know, they might not know exactly what happens in a coaching relationship, but they've heard of it. Yeah. And they probably know someone that is one. Yeah. Or is like in training or something like that. And so it's very exciting that it I think it's so becoming exciting. more mainstream. Yeah, it really is. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, because you really God. came out of corporate, right? So you probably really feel like you saw the other side of it. Yes that. and no. I mean, I wasn't deep in it. Like I had just started – my background is the fitness industry and I was both – like I worked on the gym floor and then I was in, in corporate. I worked for the American Council on Exercise, their corporate uh, offices are in okay. San Diego. And even before that, I was in fashion merchandising and I worked in a buying office as a, um assistant buyer, which was – the worst job I ever had in my life. <laughs> I'm thankful for it because we all it, need to have those. <laughs> it helped. It was it was like the Devil Wears Prada that movie, but for in the uh-huh. surf industry, and uh-huh. it made me well aware of how to not treat people in a company. Yeah, and that shit rolls downhill. And it was it was and this is interesting just about corporations while we're on the topic of this. And it was definitely an example of how to motivate people through fear and just 
guilt and shame and all of those things that can change behavior on a dime and can generate revenue, mm-hmm. but will destroy people's souls. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a huge taste of that. And I looked around the company and just thought, I don't, I don't want to see myself here in 20 years. I don't care how much money I could possibly make. And I ran. Um, but I know not all companies are like that. And that's why I'm glad that companies are seeing the benefit of personal development within their corporation and seeing the benefit of vulnerability and looking at failure as an opportunity. And yeah. because you can't have you can't have growth and creativity and innovation without being without letting your people be vulnerable. And that's like on a personal level, that's what's difficult for so many of us. And so I, I love to ask this question of all my guests because we love just the element of common humanity. And so of all the tools that you teach, what is the hardest what is the hardest topic in your life? So like what part of your life do you still have to put pull out your tools the most? Yeah. Well, it definitely, it changes. Um, but I think, um, for me, it would, it, it would still be inner critic stuff. It's just that I keep graduating, you know, <laughs> through levels of what my inner critic would think I'm not capable of. Um, so whereas in the beginning it was like, can you write anything decent at all, you know, um, and, and the fear about putting anything out there, then, you know, over five years that changed to like, okay, like, well now, yeah, the New York times op-ed page scares me a little, but lots of other writing things didn't. Um, and so I feel like that there's just a playing big edge that for me has to do with the level of visibility, the level of, um, prestige that I perceive from the the venues that I'm, you know, being connected to. And my inner critic will still come up and it'll usually say like, your message isn't clear enough for that. You need to go home and think about that more. Um, Your work wouldn't make sense to that audience or in that context. Those are some of the things it says. And it's always, so far, it's always wrong. But it, it it's still a challenge to not get delayed by it. And that's the other thing I, I think with inner critic work. We're not trying to, you know, we talked about, we're, we're just trying to take it out of the driver's seat. I also think we're not always going to be able to take it out of the driver's seat immediately. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge difference between taking it out of the driver's seat after realizing, oh my gosh, this thing has been driving this on this topic for five years. That's really different than, oh, I, I this opportunity came up a week ago. I realized I've been in self-doubt and being run by the inner critic for the past seven days. And now I'm going to do some inner critic work and use some of the tools and relate to this opportunity differently. Like we have enough time in our lives to be delayed by seven days. So I just, and I think that's, you know, with all of this work, all of this inner growth work, it's so important to remember, we're not trying to become perfect. We're Mm -hmm. human, but we're trying to, when we, when we fall out of the light and we fall out of our strength, we're trying to notice that sooner and then have some tools to course correct. Absolutely. I always say like, it's not, the goal isn't to get rid of it. The goal is to be able to manage it. And the biggest part of that is awareness. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I know that your book in paperback just was released yesterday. And so if anyone wants a direct link to that, you can go to yourkickasslife.com forward slash 79 and find it there. And where else can people find out more about you, Tara? 
Yeah, you can come over to taramore.com, T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R.com. There's a lot of great free resources there. As you've mentioned, I love to blog. So there's lots of great articles. There's a 10 Rules for Brilliant Women workbook that you can download. Um, And then, yeah, and the paperback is just out and it has a new cover and it has a new subtitle, which I'm very excited about, which is uh, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Create, Speak Up, and Lead. It has a beautiful quote from Elizabeth Gilbert about the book on the cover that we're so grateful to have and um, really excited to be bringing it into the world. Well, thank you so much for being here. Everyone, please run out and read everything Tara writes about. She's brilliant. And thank you again so much for being here. And until next time, everyone, we will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye, everyone.